Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Shahna Zaqani, and today we speak with Dr. Yuliana Hammer about her new book, Peaceful Families, American Muslim Efforts Against Domestic Violence. The book provides an excellent overview of the ways that Muslim Americans address domestic violence in their communities. Through ethnographic interviews with imams and other religious leaders, Muslim advocates, service providers, and organizations, Hammer chronicles the stories, struggles, and anxieties of Muslims as they face the intersections of a range of issues, including but not limited to anti-Muslim hostility and patriarchy. In today's conversation, we discuss some of the main points of her book and the themes that shape her arguments, including the broader Muslim anti-domestic violence movement and whether it can be classified as a movement, the relationship between gender, patriarchy, and domestic violence, the impact of Islamophobia on survivors and victims, the ethic of non-abuse that is central to advocates' work against domestic violence, and the relationship between academic policing and activist scholarship. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much, Yuliana, for joining us today to talk about your book, Peaceful Families, American Muslim Efforts Against Domestic Violence. I'm really grateful that you're here as my very first um, scholar that I'm interviewing because this is my first time doing an interview on this podcast. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, So before we begin to talking about the book, there's a tradition on this podcast uh, for us to ask the author to introduce themselves. Um, So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your intellectual journey, um, and in this case, also any specific, um, your specific journey of this book, towards this book. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm Juliana Hammer. I'm an associate professor of religious studies at UNC Chapel Hill and would at this point in my 25-year career say that my research has mainly focused, especially in the last 15 years, on gender and sexuality in Islam, often but not always with a particular interest in the context of uh, U.S. Muslim communities. So this book, which, uh, and I will talk more about that later, uh, took me a long time to write, builds on earlier work that I did uh, on woman-led prayer and feminist chronic exegesis. Within that work, um, in my previous book especially, the question of domestic violence came up repeatedly. And I realized at some point that I was interested um, in it in that particular topic in two ways. One, in the ways in which religious interpretation, especially chronic interpretation, is turned into practice and what its relationship with activism is. So I turned back to the question of uh, activist scholarship, but also activists who engage with scholars. And the second one was a somewhat frustrated decision to want to explore how far patriarchal and more traditionalist interpreters of the Quran, who often have pushed back against Muslim feminist scholarship, 
would go in defending these patriarchal interpretations. So that was happening all along the um, 2000s. And then um, when the book came out in 2012, I had already started working on this Peaceful Families project. And there was a moment in 2009 um, in the wake of the murder of Asya Zubair by her husband that prompted not only a media frenzy that I talk uh, about in one of the chapters of the book, but also a lot of soul searching on the parts of Muslim communities about the issue of domestic violence. And for me, it brought into focus the fact that they are, in fact, Muslim organizations that address domestic violence in Muslim communities. So I started the ethnographic portion of the project in late 2010, and it ultimately took me until 2019, last year, to research and then eventually write and publish the book. Okay, thank you so much for that. Um, and, I, and I could very much see the relationship between this particular book and the other works of yours that I've read. Um, my own, some of my favorite, some of my personal favorite discussions in the book were all, you know, so much about gender and authority as well, uh, which I hope we'll get to talk about today uh, later on as well. So what is your overall argument that you're making in this book? And what are some of your primary objectives? I do want to say I loved um, how ambitious your objectives were. I loved that you, your, your ultimate aim of, you know, contributing to eradicating domestic violence. That was really beautiful. Um, so I would love to hear more about your, your, your primary objectives and the arguments you're making in the book. Mm-hmm. So um, I will start with what it is not. It's not a book about domestic violence in Muslim communities. That is an important point for me because I am a religious studies scholar, not someone who has training in social work or related fields where domestic violence is usually studied. The main reason, though, for me is that the basic premise of the book is that there is domestic violence in Muslim communities worldwide and certainly in the U.S. context, but also that as far as we know, it's not any more or less than in other communities and sort of strata of uh, society. So the, the book really focuses on, and that's in the title, efforts against domestic violence, which makes it a book about stories of abuse, but those stories are sort of running running right underneath the layers, the, the sort of main layers and arguments of the book. I also realized in talking about the book, um, and I didn't quite as much when I was writing it, that I'm making a lot of different arguments rather than sort of one main one. Yeah. I'm thinking of um, my role as an advisor to graduate students, um, whom I tell repeatedly throughout the process of dissertation writing that they should focus on one central argument. Right. So uh, I, I find it interesting that I ultimately couldn't commit myself to just one. And so I'll list them really briefly, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of them. One of them is uh, this idea of an ethic of non-abuse as a baseline for the advocates, the Muslim advocates' commitment to anti-domestic violence work. What it has helped me do is rethink the relationship between discourse and practice and walk away, at least partially, from the idea that we first have ideas and then we put them into practice. 
because that ethic of non-abuse is not necessarily always formulated as a discourse before it is applied. I came to this project as a Muslim feminist scholar already committed to gender justice. And as I described earlier, it was for me a question of how to put that into practice. In doing that, I build on the work of uh, sister scholars and activists. Uh, I can't mention all of them here. It would take too much time. But I'm especially indebted to the work of Amina Wadud, Kisha Ali, Aisha Chaudhry, Aisha Hidayatullah, Lori Silvers, and Sadia Sheikh, all of whom make an appearance in the book. And I have a special relationship with the work of Mohjakaf, um, the poet and scholar who uh, was in, really influential in, in sort of getting my thinking started on these issues. So I build on the work of Muslim feminist scholars but I also consider and reconsider our frameworks for gender justice critically and in examining what work they might do in these kinds of activist contexts that I looked at. And that sort of takes me to the next point, which is that I developed some ideas in the book um, about what I call protective or benevolent patriarchy, and here I wrestle with the ways in which um, feminist critique of all patriarchy is something that I'm theoretically committed to. But in the context of the ethnographic research that I was doing, I realized that many of the advocates for various reasons do tap into the idea of protective patriarchy, by which I mean that Men are made responsible for the safety of women and children, which then is used as an argument against domestic abuse, that, that the advocates that tap into that can't just easily be critiqued for being duped into supporting the patriarchy. I took inspiration uh, from the marvelous work of Ula Taylor um, and her book, The Promise of Patriarchy. Um, the book is about uh, women in the nation of Islam in the um, earlier part of the 20th century. And she, she, she sort of helped me think through what it means to embrace patriarchal frameworks for a particular purpose. Mm-hmm. I think I also make two methodological interventions. Uh, one that is very explicit in the book um, and has to do with the question of what the ethics of scholarly critique of activisms are. So what does it mean for me to write a book about activists and advocates in which I'm called as a scholar to be analytical and critical, but what's the purpose of that critique? And so for me, that led to considerations of why I do research about this at all, what the purpose of my work is. And so I spend a lot of time in the book sort of going back and forth and and weighing the different sides of these arguments for and against, while at the same time also insisting that I don't see a contradiction in scholarship and activism. And then the second methodological point, I think, has to do with how to ethically do research and write about people who are, because of their advocacy work, um, at risk from a variety of directions. So I 
struggled with this for quite some time. I was trying to maintain confidentiality, which is kind of diff difficult because the Muslim anti-DV movement, if it then is a movement, is relatively small in terms of people. And so disclosing, even with pseudonyms, disclosing um, demographic information in order to be able to tell some of their stories or share some of their stories always ran the risk of disclosing basically at least to insiders in the movement who they are. And I want to recognize, again, the, the sort of opposition comes from different sides. Some of it comes from within communities. Um, advocates against domestic violence are always at risk, at least indirectly, from perpetrators of, of domestic abuse. And so I ended up creating, at least for some of the advocates, composite stories, which is a somewhat controversial sort of technique of basically combining the stories of different people into one and also disaggregating some um, stories into several people. So both of these happen in the book. And I'm kind of curious to see how that will be received um, by by people who, you know, think in in, in different ways about um, the methodological framings of ethnographic research. And as you already said, so two more things. One, um, anti-Muslim hostility, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, sort of looms large as, um, a, frame, as a frame for the work that Muslim anti-DV advocates are doing. And the broadest frame for me that also, as you already pointed out, sort of uh, links all the work that I've done in the last 15 years is basically the question of how Muslims in the contemporary period negotiate questions of gender norms as religious norms, um, gender and sexuality norms, uh, the specific U.S. context of uh, Muslim communities and anything that um, Muslim DV advocates do, and then the question of what the relationship between religion and culture as constructs is in this work, but also really sort of beyond that. So whether some of the constructions of religion and culture that appear as distinct in the advocacy arguments um, do hold beyond this particular context and could sort of be used as, as wider frames to think about the ways in which uh, contemporary Muslims, especially American Muslims, construct notions of their own tradition. You know, speaking of culture, culture versus religion, um, I have to say I made a new discovery when I was reading this book. And um, it occurred to me that every time Muslims have ever used the phrase, the expression that it's culture, not Islam, um, they mean it's patriarchy, not Islam. And this just blew my mind when I and it occurred to me only when I was reading this book. Another reason why I just I learned so much from this book and I, I've loved it so much um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed those conversations as well. It's culture, it's not Islam. But, of course, like you say, it's, it goes beyond um, domestic violence and, and violence in general as well. So what is the Muslim anti-domestic violence movement like in the U.S.? And, and how is it, in what ways are those who are leading it embodying an ethic of non-abuse? Mm -hmm. So these are two really big questions. <laughs> Yes. I will. I, I will. I'll start with what the movement is. So I said earlier that I'm not sure it is a movement in the proper sense. Right. 
it is, uh, as I try to sort of point out in the beginning of the book, very difficult to map, both because there is, uh, like in all um, gender-based violence advocacy uh, work, uh, burnout is a serious issue. So both people and organizations tend to exist, be formed, but also then can disappear, partly because of burnout and partly because funding is incredibly difficult to find. And so organizations cannot sustain themselves. So it's complex. It's overlapping with other um, aspects of the anti-domestic violence movement in the United States. So there's definitely overlap uh, with um, ethnically framed work. So there are organizations in the U.S. context that focus on South Asian women, um, Asian and Pacific Islander women, Arab Arab American women, African American Muslim women. So there's there there is a way in which um, these these are frames that sort of maybe take us and that might be another book may, maybe take us back to this question of culture and the role that culture might play in in particular iterations of patriarchal structures. And so I decided, because I'm a religious studies scholar, to focus on religious approaches, which means that I found organizations and people that met that particular criterion of self-identifying as Muslim and considering that Muslim dimension of themselves, which is not all they are, to be significant for the work that they do. So I looked both at um, self-identified Muslim organizations who engage and work against domestic violence, and I looked um, at least sort of in a, in a snowballing kind of way also at Muslim advocates who work in mainstream TV organizations in some of the more ethnically uh, framed ones uh, and in, in, in sort of like the spaces in between. So I, I specifically went looking for those. Uh, there were other ways at a certain point in which I could have framed this, but because I was partly interested in these religious approaches, religious justifications, ways in which um, religion could productively be employed as what DV advocates would describe as a resource rather than a roadblock. It's sort of one of those central themes of um, uh, DV advocacy work is to consider different external factors as resources or roadblocks. And so in this particular instance, Islam, however it is configured, is considered to be a resource rather than a roadblock. So the, the ethic of non-abuse that I talk about here is a religious ethic of non-abuse. So that's how, how sort of the Muslim portion of, of the, the DV movement uh, functions. And I came to realize that um, I'm always careful with bullet points and categories, but that they're basically three distinct as well as overlapping types of work that they do. One is to raise awareness of domestic violence in many different forms in Muslim communities. The second one is to educate law enforcement, mainstream um, DV service providers, and the legal system at large 
about the specific needs of Muslim victims and survivors. And the third one is to provide direct services to victims and survivors. So, yeah, I, so so I think part of part of what makes it difficult to speak of it as a movement is that the, I did research between 2010 and 2016, 17, and even in that period, some of the organizations I talk about um, ceased to do work. New ones emerged. Um, some of the umbrella organizations. Um, still exist, but don't actively function anymore. So it's a very difficult sort of movement to pin down in some ways, but that's also one of its internal dynamics, which I thought was important to write about. So there is a bit of a feeling of it being a snapshot that can help us understand broader dynamics, um, even if particular people or organizations are no longer involved in this work. Thank you for that. Um, I wanna I wanna talk about Islamophobia and how its existence um, can pose challenges for for uh, domestic violence providers and for victims and survivors of domestic violence. Can you speak to that a little bit? Mm-hmm. So um, I use the term anti-Muslim hostility with a sort of very um, intentional nod towards recognition that it is a form of racism which I will come back to in a minute. So when I started doing this ethnographic work and in reaching out to people that I found through the internet and through Facebook, I had expected, honestly, and this was based on work on anti-Muslim hostility and gendered anti-Muslim hostility, especially that I had already done, I had expected there to be much more of a reluctance to talk about domestic violence in Muslim communities. It is generally true that one of the arguments about against against awareness work and against talking about domestic violence and acknowledging it in Muslim communities is the argument that we as a minority community shouldn't air our dirty laundry because it feeds into anti-Muslim narratives. And so I expected that to be coming out much more strongly in the interviews, especially with um, Muslim anti-DV advocates. And it didn't seem to be as much of a concern to them, not because they don't care, but because their their ethic of non-abuse, their insistence that this, this, this problem in Muslim communities needed to be addressed took precedent over the concern of what that makes Muslims look like. So on that level, I was really impressed with the fact that they all acknowledge that it is an issue, but it isn't an issue that would deter them from doing the work that they're doing. Having said that, it is also the case that their work is hindered in a variety of ways by this anti-Muslim hostility. It exists in particular forms in law enforcement. It it, it exists in the court system. It exists, and I write a little bit about that in one of the chapters of the book, in um, the mainstream movement. Um, So in that, it affects both the advocates and victims and survivors in particular ways. So services cannot be provided to Muslim women if it is not recognized that they need those because their negative attitudes towards Islam, towards Muslim ideas about gender. And so there's there's sort of these 
these traps that 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 people fall into um, and that it is difficult to get out of right like so that limits possibilities on on all kinds of in all kinds of ways and that i will say also operates on an additional level in my own work so my experience with writing this book sort of revolved around questions that i would get about the specific specificity of Muslim domestic violence. So I would, um, you know, be scheduled to give a public talk about um, the the research based on the research for the book. And all people would hear is that there is domestic violence in Muslim communities, right? And so I would spend all my time trying to undo that, which wasn't the purpose of the talk in the first place. And so I have concerns um, going forward in these kinds of conversations, in reviews, but more so in, in public talks and in uh, teaching that, that, that in some ways people tend to hear what they want to hear. And anti-Muslim hostility has sort of, has, has defined in certain ways what, 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 what the audience can hear. And then there is a, a, a layer that, that I was sort of just getting to um, when I was talking about anti-Muslim hostility being a form of racism, because beyond media representations, which are powerful and do a lot of damage, and there's more to be said about who produces those and all of that, there's great work about that. Um, but it is also the case that um, court systems, law enforcement, and the state structure do treat all people of color um, differently. And so one, to give you one example of how, how this plays out is in the ways in which gender-based violence can get caught up in racist violence is in debates among Muslim communities, at least sometimes, and among advocates about whether to advocate for victims to call the police in in active um, situations of violence, because there there is a dynamic at work here in in which calling the police on an abusive Muslim husband and an abusive black or brown husband has a different dynamic to it than doing so um, in in a in a in a white community context. And um, there are scholars that have acknowledged that uh, that there's also an, an, a different, potentially different economic um, set of repercussions for um, having abusive, physically abusive husbands arrested. So I think anti-Muslim hostility is, is, is sort of woven through the work that the advocates do. And through my work in, in interesting ways, and I started to really just take for granted that that is there. And so I'm now realizing in talking about it that it is really important to start most conversations about domestic violence in Muslim communities and even the efforts against it with this as a framework in order to be nuanced and not just get distracted with the confirmation that there is, in fact, domestic abuse in Muslim families. What um, so broadly, or I, I guess very, very generally, what is what is the what is the relationship between authority, gender, 
and domestic violence. I, I don't know if it would be obvious to people who haven't read this book yet um, what that relationship might be. So it's a it's a difficult question because I went into this work with full, having fully embraced um, the feminist critique of patriarchy as a hierarchical gender-based structure that gives men, especially within marital frameworks and family frameworks, power that they can but do not have to abuse against women and children. Right? So like the, the sort of the, the basic understanding of domestic violence um, and more broadly gender-based violence as a dynamic of power and control is sort of like was was something that I that I embraced as a framework, which in turn made it difficult for me to consider that not all families are prone to certain types of abuse, right? So like that leads to questions about what causes domestic violence. Is this an, an issue of um an issue of power? Is it an issue of personal failure? Are some people, mostly men, more prone to abusing power they have in an uneven relationship? Can uneven relationships in marriage be not abusive and not ever be in danger of being abusive? So, so I... I mean, and the book is really like one big chronicle of my struggles with these different arguments. And what I end up doing is basically chronicling my struggles with these in order to show that there are different ways to think about that. So I use the term gender-based violence, which is a, an umbrella that domestic violence falls under, at least partly, there has been in the um, in the mainstream certainly um, a backlash against feminist frameworks to address domestic violence um, that takes many different forms. One of them is to point out that uh, women also abuse men in relationships. That comes up pretty much every time someone talks about domestic abuse. It um, appears in the men's rights movement. It appears in um, opposition and pushback against Me Too and the consistent claim that uh, women can falsely accuse men of uh, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and et cetera, et cetera, right? So, like, there, there is sort of a, a way in which the question of power and control, which I think runs through all of these, can be debated and looked at in a variety of ways. What in, in looking at religious frameworks, Muslim religious frameworks or arguments against domestic abuse, it's clear to me that the question of who has the authority to make those arguments is significant. So can anyone take the Quran and say, well, this verse means this and not that? There's a particular verse um, in the Quran um, 434 that depending on how it is interpreted, um, can do a whole lot of different work, um, but it certainly addresses relations within marriage. And it may or may not, depending on who you ask, um, advocate for beating disobedient wives. So every one of the words I just used is significant here. And again, there is a, an, an ongoing debate 
um, I can point you to the work of um, Aisha Chaudhry, her book, um, Domestic Violence in the Islamic Tradition, where she looks at that more specifically than I do, because I was interested in the ways in which that verse shows up in the activist work which is not something that her book does. So I was interested in whether the advocates themselves would talk about that verse, its existence, how they feel about it. And they do um, repeatedly without me having to bring it up. And it even shows up in awareness efforts in particular ways, including um, sort of alternative interpretations of it. So, one interesting sort of bit about the authority question that I think you sort of have been asking in at least two different ways is that I found that the advocates that I interviewed for the most part approached Islamic sources, textual sources themselves, especially the Quran, not exclusively, but especially the Quran, um, decided on certain interpretations and then in a second step tried to find authoritative scholarly support for them. So rather than turning to male religious scholars and authority figures and asking them for the right interpretation, they would typically report that they already had it and then would approach male authority figures to support them. And some, including some very prominent ones in the U.S. context, have done that over the past decade. But I think that sort of gendered dynamic of interpretation and the ethic of non-abuse is is interesting to consider. And occasionally, um, I try to be careful in the book because it's in print. I don't know if it's um, smart to say this in an interview, but occasionally they would also have sort of more private gripes about the, the sort of assumption that male scholars have more authority. So would sort of tell me that they came up with these interpretations and then they took them to scholars and then the scholars basically said, well, yes, of course, this is our interpretation. So there's certainly a tension here but um, one sort of theme that runs through the book is that many of the advocates are very aware of these dynamics and their primary goal is to end domestic violence. And so they will strategically employ things like, um, you know, sort of praising someone for their authority and their interpretation in order to support their work. Okay. Um, thank you for that. That's a, that was a very articulate response to my question um, because I'm, you know, as you know, I'm very much invested in the question myself. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of themes and concepts that you've introduced in the book that you analyze and in some cases that you interrogated. And some of my favorite ones, you know, protective patriarchy, the problem of activist scholarship and academic policing, um, responsible critiques, uh, the seed of purpose. Um, which is in conversation with Sadia Sheikh's uh, tafsir of praxis and your own idea of an engaged tafsir. So I'm sure that one day we'll, we'll talk about all of this in more detail. Um, but for the purpose, purpose of time here, mm-hmm. can you summarize for us this academic policing that you discuss in relation to activist scholarship? For sure. So I will start by saying that um, I have always identified as a scholar activist and at the same time, I have, and actually I come from, I was an activist before I was a scholar. 
And I have struggled over the many years that I've been a scholar activist in the academy, especially in the U.S. academy, with the perception that is pretty widespread, certainly in a field like religious studies, that someone who is engaged in work to, to use one of my favorite phrases, to change the world, in my case, to make the world better according to some ideas I have about what better would look like, that that scholarship is basically tainted by the activism. So underlying that, I think, is the notion that uh, real scholarship is um, produced by white male scholars who are supposedly objective and detached from their object of study. And there's a particular iteration of that that lives and thrives, I think, in the study of religion, where part of the expectation is that um, can be that uh, scholars are also religiously detached, right? So not only um, not in, uh, sort of like not engaged in activism. And I think the question of normativity, normative scholarship versus analytical scholarship, which is how this discussion often plays out, is a dimension of what I think you're asking here. So I've experienced this as policing in a variety of ways over the course of my career. And I will say that I've only started writing actively about this issue since I got tenure, um, which was in 2013. So that's around the time when I started much more openly talking about this as an issue and as a concern that I have. Because devaluing this scholarship um, flies in the face of everything I believe in, and um, and I'm I'm kind of done with you know like pleading to be accepted. So I bring this question of being policed for being a scholar activist into the book as a set of statements that I hope at the very least might encourage others to not let go of this because their department chairs and their colleagues and um, people in our guild sort of keep telling them that that's not real work. But again, I want to recognize the power dynamics involved in that and the, the threat um, that's built into the tenure system, um, the risks um, and the precarity of people who aren't part of the tenure system, who are under much greater threat of being policed, but also punished for this type of work. So um, I'm currently teaching a course on feminism and religion, and it was really interesting to me to sort of sit down in building the syllabus and then talking to students about the ways in which uh, feminist religious scholars have insisted over the past 30 years that these the, the, the question of the normative and the analytical cannot be disconnected from each other. And then to see that feminist scholarship more generally, especially religious studies feminist scholarship, is marginalized in ways that I hadn't quite recognized because I've been in search of it. And so I found it. But like to try and sort of weigh that against what else is out there, it's a really marginal kind of cornered space that certain things are possible in. 
I will say I have these occasional moments where I wish I was in women, gender and sexuality studies or in ethnic studies or in African-American studies or in any of the disciplines where world changing and world betterment are built into the nature of the discipline. I would argue that both religious studies and within it, Islamic studies with a whole lot of Orientalist baggage don't have the same space for that. So in a way, I think of the book also as an intervention in this conversation. And I can sort of picture how people are going to respond to it. They're either going to really like it or they're not going to like it at all. But I thought at this point in my career that it, that it was both something I couldn't hold back any longer, but also something that is worth putting out there really just as a as a as another incentive to have this conversation however it ends up going is there anything else that you'd like listeners um, and potential readers of the book to hear about this book anything that we haven't talked about maybe so i'll take this as an opportunity to talk about something that ended up not being in the book um and i have complicated feelings about that so the original manuscript contained a uh, chapter on um, an art exhibit that took place in 2011 in Maryland um, and was organized by a, an organization called Muslim Women in the Arts in, in the um, greater Washington, D.C. area. It was an art exhibition by Muslim women artists called Healing and Empowerment, Violence, Women, and Art. And I was involved in this project since right after its inception, um, through meetings with the artists, through the, um, helping with the installation of the exhibit, and then being there for the entire um, half day, half like evening, um, afternoon and evening that that it was um, open, and th- that. That was an interesting experience for me. It was very emotional. Um, I respond to to art, visual art, in very particular ways. And I wanted that to be part of the book and for various reasons, including sort of stupidly technical ones, it ended up not making it into the book. But it had such a profound impact on me to be involved with these women artists, to be there, to hear their stories. I interviewed a number of them as well. And so some of that interview material is also in that chapter. So that's a story that I'm still trying to see where I could tell and share that also has pointed me to the fact that um, books are great things, but there are other ways in which we need to get our work out. And this book, while in some ways really academic, is also an invitation, and I meant it from the beginning as an invitation, for a community conversation. And so I'm hoping that this piece that I wrote about the art exhibit and the artists might end up being a bridge to these broader community conversations. Mm-hmm. And as we close now, um, please tell us about any current projects or future projects that you're thinking about or working on. So on the one hand, I would like to say now that I'm really not doing any more writing because I'm exhausted, but right. that would not be true. It, that's never been true for me. I've, um, I, I see my, my work as a sort of like continuous set of steps in a particular direction rather than as sort of 
distinct projects that are not connected with each other. And so I have been thinking about a project that is probably going to end up being another book, but I will take my time with the book writing on patriarchal notions of Islam. What I want to do there is to think about the ways in which discussions of uh, gender, marriage, and sexuality seem to revolve around the idea that there is such a thing as an Islamic set of norms. And rather than sort of questioning whether there is this set of norms and everything else is then an aberration from the tradition, I want to describe and through that also archive these arguments for patriarchal forms of gender norms, sexuality norms, and ideas about marriage as precisely that, a particular iteration of Islam that I call patriarchal Islam. I will have to think more about this. Uh, I think uh, feminist scholars have done a lot of interesting work to offer alternatives to this patriarchal Islam, but I don't think we've actually done the work of of sort of delineating what those arguments actually are, right? Like we're always working to 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 challenge them and question them rather than to say, okay, so where do they come from? How How is this the tradition? I am working more actively uh, on a piece that uh, is thinking about uh, the place of religion and intersectional frameworks in Muslim activism that explores the possibility of intersectional solidarity for social justice. So this is something that I've spent a lot of time in the past couple of years thinking about the role of um, Black feminist theory, Black feminist intersectionality theory in particular, and what role religion could play, whether it's a point on the intersection, whether I want to crowd the intersection in that way, and whether perhaps thinking about Islam and Muslims rather than religion per se might be an interesting entry point to that conversation. And then lastly, perhaps I have been working on something, I'm not sure what form that might take, but something that brings together Muslim feminist ideas with the LGBTQI plus movement and what I think at this point of the right to love so these are all things that are clearly interconnected and um, maybe one more. Um, I've been working with um, Heart Women and Girls in organization, a Muslim organization um, that does work to um, raise awareness of sexual abuse in Muslim community contexts, but that also and in, in the framework that they employ um, um, advocate for um, sex education in Muslim communities. That all sounds very exciting and relevant. I'm, I look forward to them. Um, okay, well, I think this is it. Thank you so much for being with here with us today and for giving us your time. And I recognize that this was not an easy conversation and that this book is very hard and the topic is very hard. Um, thank you so much for that. I, I will honor this always. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reading the book so carefully. And thank you for your support. That was my conversation with Juliana Hammer about her latest book, Peaceful Families, American Muslim Efforts Against Domestic Violence, published in 2019 with Princeton UP. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous day.